0: Remember blood diamonds, like the ones that Liberian warlord Charles Taylor used to tear Sierra Leone apart in the 1990s? Well, they're still around, and so is the slave labor they support. So is conflict timber. Have you heard of it? Taylor was in that racket, too. And he let unscrupulous logging companies chop his own country's forests to fund his war with Guinea before being forced to resign in 2003. Then there's Colombia, land of lush green forests and decades of civil war, fought mostly between landowners and landless rebels. And Myanmar, where ethnic groups and the central government have been fighting for decades and funding the carnage through the sale of timber, rubies, and jade, as well as the destruction of forests for palm oil plantations.
1: The UN Environment Program says that Uh, Natural resources are a factor in about 40% of of conflicts since the Cold War, so they're often a driver.
0: Yes, natural resources are a factor in conflicts, either fueling them or funding them. And it's nothing new. After all, the United States fought its civil war as much over cotton as over slavery, which is itself a commodity of the most perverse variety. But conflict commodities are more than just the spoils of war. There are resources that usually disrupt more sustainable ways of life, like fishing or farming, and their existence wreaks havoc in parts of the world that already have weak governance, like Sicily, where the Mafia was born. The commodity there? Sulfur. In the so-called Democratic Republic of Congo, it's gold and other metals. In much of Latin America, it's timber or cocaine or diamonds. But if UNEP's numbers are right and natural resources are a factor in 40% of organized armed conflict, we can assume that natural resource management is a pillar of most peace agreements.
1: Right? If you look at peace agreements, only about 15% of peace agreements even mention natural resources, let alone call for the reform of governance in a way that would minimize the role of resources in causing future conflict.
0: As our climate changes, nature becomes more chaotic, and resources become more chaotic as well, and more scarce and more expensive, while good governance becomes more critical than ever. But are we up to the challenge? Today on Bionic Planet, the interplay between climate, conflict, and commodities, and how carbon finance fits into this constellation. Man may be unwittingly changing the
2: world's climate through the waste products of his civilization. There's a group of us now who are proposing that the Earth has actually entered a new epoch, and that is the Anthropocene.
1: We know that the enemy is carbon, and we know its ugly face. We should put a big, fat price on it, and, of course, add to that, drop the subsidies.
0: Earth. We broke it. We own it. And nothing is as it was, not the trees, not the seas, not the forests, farms or fields, and not the global economy that depends on all of these. But we can restore it, make it better, greener, more resilient, more sustainable. But how? Technology? Geoengineering? Are we doomed to live on a bionic planet, or is nature itself the answer? That's the question we examine in every episode of Bionic Planet, a new podcast of the Anthropocene, the modern epoch defined by man's impact on Earth. An impact that's especially pronounced in the world's tropical forests, which are being chopped and burned to make way for soybeans, farms, cattle ranches, and plantations for pulp, paper, and palm oil. Fortunately, there are scores of efforts to reel in this deforestation, from organizations that certify sustainable commodities to corporations that pledge to avoid chopping trees. And one tool we've examined quite a lot recently on Bionic Planet, Plus, which stands for reducing emissions from deforestation and degradation of forests, plus other land uses, and which uses carbon finance to save endangered forests by paying countries for the amount of carbon locked in their trees. It's a complex mechanism and one we'll be revisiting over and over again in the coming year. Today, we zero in on one incredibly fascinating and important aspect of Red Plus, namely how it can be deployed in conflict zones where people are either coming out of war, civil or otherwise, or still engaged in it.
1: Violence is much more common in the 10 years after a ceasefire than it is in countries that don't have that um, history. So you're about five times more likely to see violence in a post-conflict situation than a non-post-conflict situation.
0: That's Art Blendell, who's been working with Forest Trends over the past few years to identify the drivers of deforestation around the world. And he's not just talking about any old violence. He's explicitly talking about organized armed violence, war, civil war, tyranny, and its stubborn tendency to not only stick around, but to be amplified in conflict cycles where violence drives violence drives violence. I reached him via email, and he was even more succinct, pointing out that more than half of peace agreements fail within five years, often because belligerents get money from the exploitation of natural resources like logging, that they can use to fuel the resumption of civil war, while those who want to farm or fish see their livelihoods destroyed. The clip you heard is from an event called the Oslo Red Exchange, which the government of Norway hosted earlier this month. The Norwegians have made all of the panel discussions available online, and I'll be pulling out bits of audio for this and future episodes of Bionic Planet. But I encourage you to dive in on your own. That's the Oslo Red Exchange, and you can find it through Google, and it's worth doing so, because the conversations are truly fascinating, informative, and, if I dare say so, important. This particular panel focused on the role of Red Plus in war-torn societies, where peacekeeping
1: and climate efforts often exist side-by-side. 21 countries that are covered by Red have either UN or EU peacekeeping missions or peacebuilding funds.
0: Why does that matter? Well, for several
1: reasons, but they boil down to this. Peace
0: and prosperity go hand in hand with good governance. And as we'll see, so does Red Plus, which generally only works when governments engage with their local communities, share resources with them, and support viable, sustainable economies that don't destroy the natural resources on which they depend for their long-term survival. In Oslo, Blendell presented analysis from Forest Trends showing that more than half of the countries trying to develop Red Plus initiatives under the auspices of the United Nations have experienced organized armed conflict since the U.N. first started considering Red Finance in 2008. And guess what?
1: The governance reform that's required for peace building is very much what is also required by Red Readiness.
0: Red readiness is the process of getting a country's ducks in a row showing that its forest people and small farmers are engaged in the governing process and demonstrating that the government can accurately monitor its forests. And that, minus the forest bit, is what peace building does. The two processes complement each other. Or should, at least. In Liberia, for example, the United Nations Security Council sanctioned both diamonds and timber for their role in fueling regional instability. When the war ended, the Security Council required Liberia, to implement policies aimed at breaking the cycle of conflict before lifting the sanctions. But Taylor had left the forests in a mess, with so many overlapping and contradictory concessions granted under questionable circumstances that they added up to two and a half times the size of the entire country. And most of the people who'd gotten those concessions hadn't paid taxes in years. It was a mass born of disaster, and it was also a recipe for future disaster. So the new government, with support from the World Bank and a few outside governments, tore up all the concessions and created a transparent process that focused on the three C's of forestry, community, commercialization, and conservation.
3: Um, for example, for the first time, the government was committing itself to full disclosure in terms of revenue from the sector, in terms of how it manages the sector, um, very inclusive uh, forest governance, a whole raft of regulation on public participation, which was a very uh, different situation uh, compared to the situation before the war. When everything was done in secrecy, uh, the citizens did not quite know what exactly was going on.
0: That's Silas Secour, who helped end Charles Taylor's reign and eventually put him in jail by producing evidence that the strongman was using profits from illegal logging to finance the civil wars in Sierra Leone and Guinea. Secour's work was instrumental in getting the Security Council to implement those sanctions we talked about a few minutes ago. But the new forest governance, so critical to long-term peace, was not enshrined in the actual peace agreement, but came instead from domestic land reforms driven by a desire to lift the sanctions.
1: They gave control of that during the transitional government to one of the rebel groups. And it wasn't a technocrat that ran the ministries for the rebel groups during the transitional period. Um, And it was only, I think, because of the recognition by the civil society in Liberia and the international community that, that should, they should not be able to manage these resources for their own benefit and that that should be put on hold until the governance reforms were in place. So it, it didn't come out of the peace agreement. Instead, it came out of the constituency for change that recognized the role that the commodities had played in the conflict.
0: But that recognition doesn't always happen. And even when it does, it's not always reflected in the outcome
1: because not everyone wants peace. Post-conflict countries also have spoilers So there are these people who did well through war, not everybody loses, there are people that win, and they can take advantage of grievance to go back to war to protect their own self-interest, their power and money streams.
0: Outsiders don't always know who the spoilers are, and insiders often are the spoilers. Liberia fixed that by wiping the slate clean and involving everyone in the development of a new forest governance regime. As a result, civil society has been able to hold the government accountable and stop many of the major instances of fraud and corruption that otherwise would have robbed communities of the rights to their forests.
3: So we are building on the the good uh, elements of reform that have been initiated, bearing in mind the possibility that some of the spoilers could take advantage if it's not designed very well, and the logging companies uh, come at the very top, uh, wanting business as usual, but at the same time understanding these different stakeholders so that when the project is finally rolled out, it is taking account of people's interests of the different stakeholder concerns that are already there.
0: If you listen to the whole conversation, you'll hear that the project he's referring to is REDD+. And the point he's making is that, as a result of its land reforms, Liberia now has the kind of governance that can incorporate disparate groups, monitor forests, and move their red readiness process along more quickly, which in turn can help ensure a more lasting peace by getting everyone invested in a sustainable rural economy that distributes wealth fairly and doesn't grind its forests to fund wars at the expense of its long-term survival. But not every country gets to wipe its slate clean, and Myanmar has been in a state of civil war since 1949. Some of its last remaining natural forests today are in the hands of armed rebel
2: groups. All the ethnic arms organization, they control all the forested area out of Rangoon, bordering to the other neighboring countries.
0: That saw Frankie Abreu, the director of the Tenasserim River and Indigenous Peoples Network, or TRIPNET. And he adds that the fighting has pushed traditional forest people out of their homelands.
2: Due to the civil war, uh, People living in the area, fighting area have to, have to escape or have to move to Thailand as a refugee. But many people are still living inside the jungle as a internally displaced people for several years.
0: Those refugees introduce an added element of complexity when they become returnees, as many hope to do, which we'll see shortly. Then there's Colombia, which has also been in a state of civil war for decades, and that war is concentrated in areas that are rich in natural resources.
4: Uh, for 60 years, uh, concentration of the conflict has been around those areas where you have uh, the confluence, the coincidence of, of uh, uh, social issues, uh, poverty, uh, inequality, in areas that are very rich in terms of biodiversity. So that results in the conflict, and the conflict is a lot of times uh, socially based or even environmentally based.
0: That's Pablo Vieira-Samper, Colombia's vice minister of environment and sustainable development. And he's focusing on biodiversity because Red Plus is designed in part to preserve biodiversity, while aggressive mining and farming destroys it. By promoting good governance and jump-starting sustainable farming initiatives that can provide an alternative to industries like logging and plantation agriculture, he says that red Plus can turn intact forests into moneymakers and, if managed properly, help meet the needs of forest communities that might otherwise be forced to take up arms, leading to further violence.
4: What you see when you're designing a, a RED program is that the main objective is not what people outside this room understand, which is it's money for uh, planting trees. No, the idea about the implementation of a red program is to transform the activities, transform those uh, drivers that are resulting in deforestation for more sustainable activities that will lead to a reduction of the conflict, uh, social, environmental and generate opportunities, generate jobs, uh, generate income for the
0: population. The analysis that Blendell presented in Oslo makes that case as well. Let me read you an excerpt. Governance reform and the convening of deliberative multi-stakeholder processes associated with RED readiness can also contribute to environmental peace building, it says. If properly managed, RED Plus can potentially strengthen peace and security as much as it can mitigate climate change, improve environmental management, and support local communities. Samper went a step further.
4: As a co-benefit, at the end of the day, we would have those environmental and climate change benefits.
0: That's a fascinating statement, because a co-benefit is something like a byproduct. And in carbon accounting, the only benefit everyone can agree on how to measure is the climate one, because the only outcome we can really measure concretely is the amount of carbon locked in trees or the amount of carbon dioxide pulled out of the atmosphere. That's what the world as a whole gains. And if you heard our last episode about the UN Sustainable Development Goals, you know that there's a growing awareness of the interplay between climate benefits and so-called co-benefits. But from Samper's perspective, the social benefits are the primary outcome, and the climate stabilization is the co-benefit.
4: RED generates uh, sustainable development in these areas, which allow uh, for... uh, Peace building and the durability of the, of the peace process, so it's it's a virtuous cycle.
0: That at least is the theory. In practice, things get complicated.
2: When we talk about red or red plus program, it is not a very simple issues and problem solving. So we have to look at to the holistic and try to find a way how red plus program can integrate to make a safe return and peaceful life for the people in Burma.
0: So what are the complications? To begin with, there's the need to build trust. War-torn countries, it turns out, are a lot like war-torn individuals.
1: Red programs working in these countries have to remember that people have been traumatized and their ability to trust you and how easy how the relationship you have are very difficult to build um, in these environments so that argues for conflict sensitivity you have to understand the history of the of the conflict the legacy of that conflict on the presence and your interaction with it
0: but war-torn countries need money and there's a perception that you can get a lot of that now
1: by chopping trees. There's a big pressure for quick wins in post-conflict countries. And unfortunately, there's an ideology that that will come from industrial forestry and the conversion of forest to plantations.
0: He argues that the immediate benefits of industrial forestry are overstated at best, but they're non-existent and even counterproductive if you don't have good governance.
1: I say it's ideological because there's actually no good evidence that that works. Because the investment isn't quick, and you don't get a resumption because of all the problems um, around insecurity and poor investment climate. But there's also an ideology that RED is unable to deliver quickly.
0: But that ideology, as he calls it, does have a basis in reality. In the early days, RED Plus initiatives, which to date have only been implemented on a small scale, either through the voluntary carbon markets or through government pilots, only paid off after the results have been verified. Now, after a decade of experimentation, developers have an idea of what works and what doesn't, making upfront payments more common. And they should become even more so, as governments implement the Paris Agreement. But the big money will still come later, and most recipients still don't understand the Red Plus mechanism, while they do understand mining.
3: Because right now, the questions that people ask, where will the money come from to pay for the carbon? Um, Are you relying on the market? Um, Will there be sufficient money? I should just quickly point out that um, in the last decade, the mining companies, by the way, um, have invested or at least paid up a little over $80 million to the government to to transfer to local uh, communities where they operate. Now, where is that kind of money going to come from? That's a little more than half of what Norway is putting up Uh, For the Liberian government.
0: He also points out that governments, including his own, have bungled conservation efforts in the past by trying to impose them without community support.
3: One of the areas that we can also uh, take some lessons from is where the government has tried to impose uh, projects on the people, protecting the area system on the people, they've resisted. And people are very uh, active politically uh, these days. So we've seen that in uh, one region in the East Neymar Nature Reserve where the community just said, absolutely, that's not going to happen. And today, the government had to roll back and grant that community the right to manage that particular forest. And I think we need to keep all of that in mind.
0: Proponents of REDD+, he says, must do a better job of communicating the advantages of REDD+, over more lucrative activities like illegal mining and the cocaine trade, in part by pointing out that Red Plus works by helping farmers and taking pressure off the forest, something extractive industries don't do.
4: With regards to uh, how to uh, compete with legal and sustainable activities against illegal activities such as crops, uh, also mining, uh, the reality is that uh, if we were thinking that the actual miners or, 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 the, uh, or the people who are growing the uh, coca leaf were receiving the benefits that they should get, inter- economic benefits from, from their products, then it would be very, very difficult. But the reality is that they make very little money. The reality is that they are um, under a situation where they're a lot of times forced to do this. And the reality is that when you talk to them, they all
0: say that given an opportunity, they would move away from
4: those activities.
0: But there's one problem that no one has an easy answer to, namely how to deal with refugees who
1: are coming home. You know, there's land rights is is everywhere, but in the post-conflict situation, there's a big problem with returnees. In many parts of the
0: world, like Tanzania, as we saw in an episode of Bionic Planet called The 40,000-Year-Old Question, and in Brazil... Red Plus has been used to strengthen the rights that indigenous people have to their land because those rights are needed to forge a workable Red Plus agreement. But conflict zones are different because the indigenous people have often fled the region and others have taken their
2: place. Due to armed conflict, many people have to live in the refugee camp. Now, like uh, refugees are pressure for returning, because this election has been finished. We have democratic government, but not 100%, because the main three important ministries defense, home affair, and border are directly appointed by the military. So uh, this is a situation when people are asked, refugees are asked whether they would like to go back to their homeland or not. They are thinking, everybody would like to go home. This is your homeland. Thailand is not the belong to you. But when they look at to their homeland, their homeland is occupied by the large plantation and uh, mining or natural resources extraction. All the waters are polluted. So it cannot give a safe home to go back to your area.
0: It's what economists call a wicked problem, one with no easy solutions.
2: Right now, it's an ongoing peace process, and they will talk about demarcation of the territories, resources sharing. Now, we'll be discussed in the political dialogue.
0: But forest people tend to follow customary law, shared access to forest resources, while laws regarding so-called vacant lands,
2: those abandoned by refugees, have a different orientation. In one vacant land law, it is mentioned that a person can... Register for 5,000 acres of land. None of the farmer can do farming on like this kind of area.
0: And remember what Blundell said, most peace agreements don't mention resources.
2: So far, what I've learned in the drafting policy for political dialogue, I couldn't see they put environment conservation as a priority.
0: The danger is obvious. Even if it tries to implement a red Plus regime, which could help forest people develop sustainable livelihoods based on agroforestry and other sustainable practices, Myanmar could end up fueling the next conflict cycle.
2: So the arms ethnic group, they use the natural resources and forest, forest resources for their revenue in order to fight against the central government. So in our country, Land tenure is a big issue. Single farmers who practice their living on that land for a generation, they don't have a land title. While, the, while a large company can possess a large area of land and then started their uh, projects such as palm oil plantation and like a rubber plantation.
0: Colombia, however, is making resource management a pillar of its peace agreement.
1: Colombia should really be commended because that is not the normal, right? The high-level panel report at the UN on peacekeeping doesn't even mention natural resources, right? This is the future of peacekeeping and they're not even recognizing the opportunities that Colombia has recognized and is taking advantage of.
0: By embedding resources in the peace agreement, Colombia hopes to overcome another of the great tragedies that often undermine efforts to promote sustainable development. Namely, in most cases, environment is the low ministry on the totem pole because it doesn't attract finance. Samper hopes that will be different this time.
4: When the rest of the government turns around and how do we do this, where, where do we start, the Ministry of Environment can say like, oh, we already started with that and we already know how to do it and and there's opportunities and there's funding for that. And then the Ministry of Environment becomes very important and very attractive to other ministries because there's funding, there's experience and there's a, a way to, to do these things.
0: Will it work? Nobody knows. But I do welcome your ideas. So feel free to send them to me at steve at bionic-planet.com. Once again, that's steve at bionic-planet.com. You can also use your smartphone to create a brief audio comment and mail it to me. And if it's appropriate, I'll read it on the air. The address again is steve at bionic-planet.com. You're listening to Bionic Planet, a new podcast of the Anthropocene, the modern epoch defined by man's impact on Earth. Do you like what you've heard so far? Do you want to hear more? If so, be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, or TuneIn, or Stitcher, or whichever service you use to access us. And let the good people of the world know what you think by leaving an honest review. Because the more good reviews we get, the more ears we get. And the more ears we get, the more funding we get. And right now, Bionic Planet has no funding of its own. It's a labor of love, and I'm both the labor and the love. Bionic Planet is written by me, produced by me, and hosted by me with voluntary support from my colleagues at Forest Trends and Ecosystem Marketplace. If all you do is subscribe, that's great. But if you want to help us materially, you can click on the donations tab at bionic-planet.com, or even better, you can advertise, because ultimately, I'd like to scale this up make it big enough to attract commercial advertising because that means I'm reaching enough people to make it worth your while to support this effort and reaching people is what this is all about if you're interested in becoming a sponsor email me Steve wick at steve at bionic planet dot com if you have a product or service that I feel comfortable endorsing we can work something out bionic planet is an independent production And the views expressed here are mine and mine alone and do not necessarily represent those of Forest Trends or its affiliates. My guest today is Kirsten Canby, who runs the Forest Policy, Trade and Finance program at Forest Trends and co-wrote the analysis that Blendell presented in Oslo. She also moderated that discussion, which you can find on Bionic-Planet.com or on YouTube by searching for Red Plus and Peace Processes Oslo. I caught up to her this morning and asked her first if she had explicit recommendations for using Red Plus to move peace processes forward, or if her aim was more to just point out that Red Plus and peace processes can be complementary and to hope others would move the ball from there.
5: Well, I think in the in the first place, we have to acknowledge that the the peace processes have not actually been addressing forests. So in that regard, Red Plus programs and peace building processes have not really been all that complementary to each other. But they have such great potential to affect each other, both positively and negatively. So we want, at the very least, that the Red Plus programs are not going to be, shall I say, conflict insensitive, sort of cause more conflict by ignoring historical grievances over land rights or forestry rights or forest management processes, access, et cetera. But we would actually love for REDD+, to actually be even better and complementary to the peace processes. And that's what I think we saw the, um, the Columbia processes being right now, at least on paper, is the ideal where it really looks like the peace agreement is, or shall I say the Red plus process, is an implementing arm of the peace agreement.
0: Yeah, and um, uh, Pablo Vieira-Sampera made that quite clear. But I also found Silas Secura's presentation really interesting. I mean, he said that uh, Liberia essentially wiped the slate clean. You know, they did a complete reset on their forestry governance, and they're now Almost red ready, well, Colombia is trying to do red and peace at the same time, and are fairly far along on both, if I understand correctly, while myanmar, if I understood uh, saw Frankie Abru correctly, is really just getting started am, am i um am I summarizing this right
5: <laughs> that's that 's right I mean, you could say that in Liberia, the peace process came way before red ever appeared on the landscape in Colombia you know, the peace agreement hasn't been signed, but it's being, has been negotiated for several, for a very long, long time. So, in a way, it has been a little bit parallel to RED. And in that way, it could be slightly more analogous to Myanmar, where the ceasefire negotiations are happening. Some of the non-state armed groups have signed on, others have not. Um, so, there is still some ongoing conflict there. So. It's a little bit different from Colombia in that you don't have the, the peace agreement process isn't as far along, but you could say that the process is going and the red process is just starting up now at the same time. So that does lead to the idea or the hope that possibly that these two processes could be designed in parallel to be able to speak to each other.
0: I saw Frankie Abreu very clearly described the challenge of dealing with returnees. You brought it up again and again, and it adds a really wicked level of complexity to this whole issue of land tenure. Is is solving this a precursor or a um, maybe pre prerequisite is a better word to everything else?
5: In a sense, you almost need to do all things at the same time. How can we have read payments, or at least at a project level, unless the land rights issues or territorial control issues have been solved. And it would be great if RED, as a national process could help help with the dialogue surrounding this. It may be unrealistic to think that RED on its own would be able to be the program that solves all the issues related to land rights. There are other processes, and it probably needs to go to very high levels within government uh, to be able to sort these issues out. So in that regard, I think it may be unrealistic to think that RED could solve this, but RED has funding and has the attention of some donors that could help complement it or be just sort of one tool within, you know, a whole toolbox of many tools that need to be used to address land rights and territorial control issues.
0: There are so many things that can go wrong in these conflict zones and so many things that have to go right. What do you see as the single most important take-home from these findings, Or, or is there even one that stands above the others?
5: I'm trying to think that, you know, one big message that we would like to get out is for those who are involved in peace-building processes to really think about natural resources. You know, to some degree, talking to people who work in RED, they probably already think, oh, yeah, we know this. Yeah, we know that NRM and peace needs to be, need to be more integrated, but they don't really know how to do it. We get the feeling that those who are working on the peace-building processes don't even know that NRM is important.
0: Why is that?
5: We don't really know. Um, There is one possible explanation, and that is if you bring in the really contentious natural resources into the peace agreements itself, they're so contentious that you may actually never come to agreement, and sometimes maybe you want to just get the peace agreement done, and we'll deal with the more contentious issues in the peace building process afterwards. So in that case, you could sort of forgive the fact that these contentious natural resources are not specifically mentioned in in the peace agreement. But in that case, you would also want to see immediately thereafter in the agenda of peace building workshops and and policies and reform measures that are addressed specifically for NRM. Um, But we feel that they're not being addressed. In fact, even worse, sometimes the rights to some of these resources are being sort of allocated to the various parties as sort of like we'll call it war booty, just to sort of placate these groups. Okay, you can have access to the diamonds, you can have access to the timber or something like that. Um, So that's one possible reason. Another one is that, hey, why why is the Ministry of Environment so ignored in so many countries? Sustainable development is talked about, but is pretty much ignored in favor of the, you know, the conventional model of economic growth. And so that could be another reason.
0: Are people um, receptive? Is it catching on?
5: We don't know. You know, this was a big topic in the early 2000s with Liberia. And I remember there were reports that came out about exactly this topic then. And here we are more than 10 years later, and we're still talking about the same thing. And I think Art and I were very surprised when he did his research because we thought that after Liberia lead diamonds, conflict timber, the U.N. sanctions, we thought that the world pretty much understood this, but we find that it really wasn't integrated, so we have to make another push.
0: Well, I'll give it whatever push I can, and that's Kirsten Canby, who runs the Forest Policy, Trade, and Finance program at Forest Trends, wrapping up this edition of Bionic Planet. Now, I've gotten a few emails asking when I'll post the second half of the 40,000-year-old question episode. And the answer is soon, maybe next week if I have time to get to it on the weekend. I really apologize for taking so long to roll that one out. It's just been kind of busy and it's been about 10 years since I've done radio and I forgot how long this can take sometimes. Until then, that's all for today. I'm your host, Steve Zwick. Thanks for listening.